Hi, and thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, live and worldwide from our studios in Washington, D.C., which right now are my kitchen table and uh, the counter beside it because I can't get to my studio. But I'm not alone. We're all sort of hunkered down and getting through this thing together. Thank you so much for listening. Podcast is made possible by our buddies at SpeakerMatch.com. That is the world's largest online speakers bureau. So if you're a keynote speaker or you're a meeting planner, get together at Speaker Match's online virtual marketplace and figure out how to figure your way through this whole thing, whether it's an online presentation that's happening now on Zoom or Skype, or if you're planning ahead for an in-person presentation or a keynote in 2021, SpeakerMatch.com is the place to be. Today we're talking movies, TV, and music with my buddy Donnie Most. Now, most of us first learned about Don when he spent a lot of time on Happy Days, but he's done all kinds of stuff since then. He's done television, movies, he's a director, he does live theater, and Donnie and I connected over music. He's a huge fan of the Great American Songbook, and he joins us through the miracle of technology via telephone from 3,000 miles away. Don Most, how are you, sir? Oh, good, Mark. Thanks for having me on, and good to talk to you again. It's my pleasure. Um, I, I want to go all the way back. You are not a California kid. You grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah, yep. I was born in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn, and, uh, you know, I was there till I was, well, when I went to college, I, I went to in, in Pennsylvania down at Lehigh University, but I was still, you know, technically coming home on holidays and all that, still in Brooklyn until I was about 20. And then I, uh, during the summer, I decided after my junior year to spend the summer in L.A. because I had been pursuing acting and singing since the time I was about 13, uh, going into Manhattan for lessons and, you know, going to the school on weekends for, for singing, acting and all that. And, um, and then I, I decided, and, and through that, I started going to a more serious acting class and then getting jobs in the New York area, a lot of TV commercials, some, a little bit of TV, but back then they weren't shooting that much at television in New York, except for soap operas, but none of the other, like they do now, all the nighttime shows. Uh, they weren't doing that back then. So what I was went it out like to growing up in Brooklyn. Tell me about your childhood back then. I guess that would have been in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was, you know, I was a teenager more in the 60s. You know, went to high school in the into in the late 60s. But yeah, but I was, you know, as a kid in the 50s, um, I grew up in an apartment building in in the Flapper section, about a mile from where the old Ebbets Field uh, used to be, where the oh, wow. Brooklyn Dodgers played. And uh, close to uh, Prospect Park, and um, and I so you know it was it was the apartments all over apartment buildings, but we had a little. Uh, my friends and I used to play ball. There was a side street that didn't get too much traffic, and uh, you know so we'd be playing touch football in the streets and punch ball, and and uh, a, a block away was the subway, and we'd play sometimes against. They had a wall and play stick ball. And then the park, there was a parade ground. It was called the parade grounds, which was a big, huge, um, I don't know how, might, might've been a half a mile long and I don't, and quarter a mile the other way, it was all ball fields. So we used to go there to play a lot of, you know, baseball and football. And then, um, and at Prospect Park, they had a skating rink. So during the winter, you know, you can do that. And, um, 
and you know, it was a real, as, as we all know, it was a real melting pot, New York City and Brooklyn back then, very much the same. And uh, I went to uh, Erasmus Hall High School, which was uh, literally about maybe two blocks from my house. And, uh, you know, uh, you'd walk, that's where Barbara Streisand went to high school and Neil Diamond went for a couple of years and, and all kind, a lot of Barbara Stanwyck and Lainey Kazan and Eli Wallach, a lot of uh, famous people, Bobby Fischer, the, the chess champion. Sure. And, and um, you know, we would say uh, Flatbush Avenue is where the school was. And um, people would just, con- like on Friday nights, uh, people would just congregate along Flatbush Avenue. There was this old church and had steps. And there'd be just hundreds of us from high school just hanging. That was the hangout. You know? And um, you know, all the pizza parlors around there. So it was that kind of uh, that kind of uh, bringing up, and uh, it was a great, great childhood. What were your mom um, and dad? Was, what did What did your mom and dad do? Tell me about them. My my dad uh, was an accountant uh, and controller, you know, for a firm, and um, so you know he'd take the subway in every every morning uh, during the week and go to work. And my mom was a homemaker, and um, but we were lucky; we got to spend. As you know, the city was, you know, had a lot of its, had a lot of things to offer and, and certainly um, this sort of electricity and the, the energy and, and, and the diversity of it. Uh, it was, it was a great, great melt, you know, fervent, fervent uh, place to be. But, um, but I was lucky in that I got, my grandparents had a house up, up North, upstate a little bit for the summer house. So I'd be able to get out of the city because it was pretty, it wasn't a great place during the summer to be in the city. Yeah, uh, pretty sticky yeah. in Brooklyn uh, in August. Yeah. You know, and as a kid, it was great to get up to the country right near a lake and um, you know, go to camps up there. So I was very lucky to have that too, to, to counter, sort of counterbalance the city life. So nobody else in your family, brothers or sisters? Do you have brothers and sisters? I, I have an older sister, Randy. She's two years. She's two years older than me, and um, I live out in Southern California, uh, about thirty, forty minutes outside LA. And uh, Randy, she lives up in Marin County, um, north of San Francisco. Was she so, in, in involved in uh, creative stuff in theater or, or film or TV, or were you the odd man not, out there? She not not. She wasn't pursuing it really. I mean, she did it. When we were young, you know, she used to do it in camp and the camp plays and and she was always pretty active and she took dance lessons. And so she she had that side, but she wasn't uh, pursuing it, really, you know, didn't have have a real drive for to 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 go after that. I did very early. Um, I was pretty young when I started really getting interested in it. Um, When I saw the movie The Jolson Story when I was nine years old. It was a biopic about the great Al Jolson. Right. And um, and that seeing that movie just lit a fire under me like uh, unbelievable. And so then I was getting all his music and then listening on the radio. That's how I got an education in the great American songbook, because um, from from being introduced to it in that manner, I started reaching out more. And there was a radio station in New York, WNEW, and there was a. Uh, legendary disc jockey william b williams sure and he and he had a show every night that would play all the greats you know all the the standards and um 
So I got a, I'd listen to it every night, and that's how I uh, got an education from a very early age in, in that music. I just loved it. My mom also, being sort of a teenager and young adult in the 40s, in the swing era, she had a lot of those great big band albums. So I was exposed to that, and and I have a, always had a, a love for that kind of music. And, and, you know, jazz and blues, and it extended in scope more and more as I got into my teens and started being exposed to different kinds of music and 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 even the what we would call uh, classic rock now you know and that kind of music too um but for the the one that was in my blood and that i you know and i performed when i was 15 uh, through the school i was going to i got handpicked to be in a in a review like a nightclub act of uh, there were seven of us age 14 to 16 and and we performed I, the summer I was 15 years old, I turned, I just turned 15 that summer, um, up in the Catskill mountains, the resort area, upstate New York sure. had a zillion hotels with the nightclubs and they hired entertainment. So I, I spent the summer, uh, singing in that, in that nightclub review and singing my heart out and thinking I'd made the big time, you know? Oh, that's awesome. So I'm imagining you in one of those marvelous Mrs. Maisel kind of situations where you're at this Catskills resort and you're just knocking it out every night. Yeah. I mean, we played, you know, it was all every hotel up there except the Concord. We didn't, we couldn't break into the Concord. That was the big, <laughs> one. that was the big one, but we did all the other ones, the Grossingers, the Neville, the Granite, Tamarack, Pines, all the hotels, and then even bungalow colonies had their own entertainment. So yeah, I mean, we probably, I'd probably, we were probably doing four shows a week or something like that, you know, summer long, maybe five. I don't even remember, but um, uh, so it was a great, great experience. But you know, that was my, I guess, first love really was the music, and I switched my focus after that summer. I. I became part of this uh, dramatic workshop that uh, we found because um, my parents helped me find it. I they talked to people and, and then it became more, a more serious focus on the acting. And so, put, I put the music aside for, 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 for a while. For so a at that time. time though, I mean, you're in high school when the whole world is, is kind of falling apart. As a matter of fact, there've been lots of people who've compared the late sixties to what's happened here in 2020 with, uh, you know, right. the racial protest and all that. And, yeah. and you guys had Vietnam as well. So that had to be yeah. in the back of your mind. Tell me what it was like growing up in the late sixties and knowing that, look, your number could come up at any time. Yeah, um, definitely. I remember when I was waiting to see what number I was going to get, you know, the lottery uh, for the draft. And, um, but I also knew, you know, I, I entered college, uh, I, I was I was like a year ahead of myself, so um, I had just turned 17 in August and became a freshman in college. So there was the exemption that that I had, but I was still assigned a number, and and I remember my number was sort of borderline, you know, where because they were like, okay, if you're I can't remember, but if it's like if you're 200 and higher, you know, you probably won't get called or something, you know, that might not be the exact number, but, and maybe I was like 220, you know, so it was, so, so, you know, in your mind, you're knowing, okay, when college is over, you could get, you could get called. But then for me, what happened was, you know, by then I, I, I wasn't going to graduate till 74. So by then the war was, 
drawing to a close and and it was more apparent that you know by by my junior year that i was i was okay you know it wasn't gonna it was ending I, i'm trying to remember the exact year the date but i you know by my junior year i knew i was probably fine you got through it but yeah. but, but but it was you know but of course you're thinking about that and concerned about it but I don't know, at that age, you know, you're so thrust into whatever you were doing at the time, and college was a whole new experience. So so that was uh, the you know the thing that was uppermost in, in my consciousness. What was your college, was your college experience like at Lehigh there in, in Pennsylvania? Was that a good experience for you? Yeah, it was great. Um, it was wonderful. A, a great school, great campus. I met, you know, some, uh, I joined a fraternity my sophomore year, and signal from you and then uh made some great great friends and i'm friends with a lot of them today and uh really close with a few um you know i was my focus was so going to college was you know my parents didn't want me to just uh after high school pursue the acting full time because they felt uh it was such a precarious business that you know you need to have something solid as a it was the backup plan go to college you know sure, and, of course. And at least so, so, but I was, I, I was spending more time, you know, commuting from, from uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania into Manhattan for my auditions. <laughs> you know, I would be taking, <laughs> I would be taking the bus, you know, almost a three hour bus ride and into Manhattan, then get on a subway and go to the audition and then go back. Sometimes I'd go into Brooklyn and spend the night at my parents and dad had back. But, um, you know, I, I knew what I really wanted to do, and and uh, I was so focused on that. And I was landing, getting jobs, a lot of commercials, and while I was in college. And then I I was doing a lot of theater, as much theater as I could um, while I was in, in, at Lehigh. They did not have a theater department back then, but they had a, a a club, a theater club. And then we would join up with some of the other other schools and do do th- productions. So, um, do you remember any so of the plays that you were in in college? Oh yeah, I remember all of them. Um, I was in uh, Billy Budd, and I was in uh, Taming of the Shrew, and I was in a play called The Rivals by an old play like from the eighteen hundreds by Robert Sheridan, and um, and then I did a, a one-off play by Harold Pinter, The Dumb Waiter, and there was one other play that I can't remember, uh, Crawling Arnold, it was called. So yeah, I. I I can't believe I remember that. That popped in my head out of nowhere. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. And so you're doing you're doing Shakespeare, you're doing everything in college. And then how is it that you wound up in California and, and you do the audition that, that landed Happy Days? Because I'm sure that didn't happen uh, there in Lehigh. No, it did not happen at Lehigh. So, so, yeah, after my junior year, I went out to L.A. For the, uh, the plan was to go for the summer. And uh, make some because that's where a lot of the like I said most of the TV and film was being shot and and I felt okay let me make some contacts so that when I graduate the following year you know I might want to be out there move out there but let let me make some uh, do some networking because some of the agents that I'd been working with in New York for the acting they either had associates or they could refer me to some agents to meet. So I went out there and uh, met a bunch, and luckily uh, a few of them wanted to sign me because uh, I I had a couple of some big national commercials running at the time, and 
you know, uh, being from New York, they they were pretty receptive. And um, so I, I signed with an agent that was a really good, had a lot of good character actors, a good boutique agency. And um, they started sending me out on auditions and I landed a few right away, you know, during that summer. And, um, and then I, I was supposed to go back to Lehigh for my senior year, but the agent said, you know, you, you really th- should think about staying, take six months off. You can go back to school, but you've got some momentum going and why not keep it going? And we think you could do really well. You know, the new season is starting up. And so I did. I, you know, it was a tough decision. It wasn't that tough for me. I knew my parents were going to love it, but but you know, okay, Dad, the accountant was probably not buying into this plan. I'm assuming. Yeah, I think you, your assumption is pretty on. Um, but you know, the lucky thing for me was that I I had done well in those four years. I did like 40 commercials in those four years, so I had saved some money and I could finance you know this this uh, the, the summer trip and then the extended trip, the extended part of it. So, um, so then. I, I got a part, but then I got nothing for like three months. And I was like, oh, no. You know, so I now had I'd gotten three parts in different shows, but then it was almost nothing for a couple of months. And I thought I made a big mistake. But then um, I found out I had an audition for a new pilot, a pilot for a new TV show that is about the 50s. And um, I met with the two of the executive producers, had a meeting. and. Then they called me back, and then I had another meeting, and this time I was reading for Gary Marshall and, and about 10 other people in that big room at Paramount Studios. And then I got a call that he wanted me to come and do a screen test, which I then did. And um, so it was after that that I got the offer uh, to, to, to do the show. So it was, um, you know, I mean, I'd only been out there well, so I'd been out there for the two months for the summer, and then this was about three months later. So it was about, you know, five months. And then, that, like I said, I did three other shows. And then I went on a whole bunch of interviews for a while. I didn't get any. And then um, and then this came up. The funny thing is I was actually at the same time up for another project, a, a dramatic TV movie, which I was much more interested in doing, by the way. It was drama. And uh, two of the parts I'd gotten were dramatic parts. And uh, this was a, a really good uh, period piece, a World War II piece, and um, great script uh, written by the guy who had written uh, Summer of 42, which was a, one of my favorite movies back then. So I was excited, and then I had a great audition, and they said, uh, my agent said, uh, they loved you, and you've got a great chance of getting this part, but they won't know for a couple of weeks because... Uh, they're waiting to see about this actor, Jack Wharton, who they wanted to play. It would be my uncle, and they thought I was perfect to play his. I look like a young Jack Wharton, he said. What? So, so, well, yeah, I kind of did, I guess. Uh, so, so it was like uh, um, uh, at the same time as the Happy Days thing. So then when I got, you know, my agent said, you have a really good chance at this. So then when we got the offer, um, it wasn't for the for happy days i had been trying out for the role of potsy but um they called my agent said and friday that uh you didn't get he didn't get that but um they they liked his screen test so much the executives that they want to create a role 
and, and make him a regular. And there's a small part in the pilot for a guy named Ralph. And we'll make it a regular character. So my agent and I talked about it, and I really wanted to do the other TV movie, the dramatic one. So we turned it down. We turned Happy Days down on that Friday night. And um, I was, we said no. Wow. <laughs> As, as fate would have it, my one of my agents there, my agency played basketball every Saturday at Gary Marshall's house. <laughs> so, so here he is playing with Gary, and then during a break in the in the game, he pulls Gary pulls my agent over and he's like, "Hey, what's with your boy turning us down?" And uh, and he told my agent that they were pretty sure it was going to go on as a midseason replacement. He offered me more money than they originally offered and guaranteed me more episodes like 10 out of the 13 instead of seven. And the agent called me on Monday and said, you know, I think we should reconsider this, <laughs> you know, because long hand and if I, they had to know by Monday and I wasn't going to find out about the other project for another week or so. So, um, we then took happy days. So <laughs> pretty, pretty, uh, interesting, uh, series of events there. So did you have any idea at that time that this was going to be a hit? I'm sure you you didn't have a crystal ball that would say this would be sort of this cultural phenomenon that Happy Days was, but did you have any inkling at all that this was going to have legs? Yeah, yeah good question, because you're right. I mean, there's no way um, anyone could have known the degree uh, of the success that the show would have and the you know, cultural phenomenon, as you, as you stated. But I did have a, you know, when I was shooting the pilot, I I was hanging around watching it like a hawk. Even when, you know, my scenes would be over and I could go home for the day, I would just stick around and watch. And I was picking up, I remember calling my parents up in Brooklyn and saying, I got a good feeling about this. You know, I think this is going to go, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm sure they were like, yeah, you probably, you know, it was probably wishful thinking. Um, but I... You know, the, I was picking up on on the chemistry between the actors. Um, you know, Ron and and Ron. Of course, Ron Howard had been in the business since he was a, a three and a half years old, and and he was already right. pretty a well known star. But watching him work with you know Tom Bosley and Marion Ross and and the family scenes, I would watch, and then and then seeing Henry. You know, nobody knew who Henry was, but he had such a presence and, and, a, and a command uh, a command over this character that he, you know, it was, it evolved, but, but right off the bat, I, I was seeing some wonderful things developing and, and, and then when doing the scenes that I was in and with Ron and, and, um, and, and then of course, Gary Marshall was around a lot. So his influence was there and, I was just picking up, you know, and it was hard because it's not like I'd ever done a series before. You know, I'd done, I'd done right. guest roles on shows, but I'd never done a pilot for a new series. So I didn't have anything to compare it to. But my instincts were just saying to me, this feels like like it could really succeed, you know. And, you know, for people of a certain age, um, they don't really have a touchstone on how big that show really was. But... If you are, you know, you got a little more seasoning like me, for example, you know, I can tell you, I was, I was in elementary school when that, that show hit 
And there were two Halloweens, for example, that I had the Arthur Fonzarelli leather jacket <laughs> and lipstick prints on my face, and I went out to trick-or-treat as Fonzie. Um, yeah. And, you know, there were the lunch boxes and the merchandise. And, the I mean, this show was everywhere. Yeah. And, and I, I know it's been a minute, but I wonder if you can kind of go back in time and think about the moment that you realized – wow, this is really big. Like, did they ever send you out on press junkets where you, you land somewhere in the Midwest and then suddenly you you realize this is way bigger than I thought it was on the soundstage? Absolutely. I mean, you you nailed it. That's exactly what... Is that what happened, really? That's exactly what happened because cause we're on the soundstage, as you said, doing the show, and you kind of insulated, you know, especially the first two years we were shooting it. We were not shooting in front of a live audience like we did later on. It was... First two seasons, it was shot like a movie. So, you know, come in early and and do scenes out of order, different scenes. Maybe you're done early, you go home, or maybe you're working late. And um, and you, you don't have a sense of that is how many people it's reaching. You know, you're just doing, you're going into this insulated world, doing it and going home and, and preparing. And there's no internet then. There's no, you know, where all the, the media is pervasive all the time. Right? Absolutely. And there was only three stations, you know, three three uh, ch- channels, um, except for your local channels. So no cable, no Internet. So, um, you know, you don't have a sense of I mean, when we became number one, you know, we were we were reaching that we were getting 50 to 60 million people a night watching us. You know, wow. where where now something is very successful. I think if you get five to six million people, That's but we right. but we had like right. 50, 50, 60 million. So, you, you, but but you don't have a. It's hard to comprehend that. You know, when you're in the sound stage, as you mentioned. So, when they sent us out on these press tours, uh, ABC sent us out, and I the first first city um, it was Ron. No, Ron couldn't. He was shooting something, and he had to join us. But it was Anson, Henry, and myself. And we land in in uh, Houston, and we knew something was up there. When we land, there's there was like a limo on the tarmac waiting for us. You know, so so we get that. Well, that doesn't happen all the time. And we get <laughs> we get in the limo, and then we show up. We were supposed to go to. Um, you know, we knew it was an outdoor venue and we thought it was like some fashion show. We were just going to make an appearance and say hello to the crowd and that sort of thing. And then go on to some radio station or TV station. So we get close to the, <laughs> we're getting close to the, this venue, this outdoor venue. And as we're getting there, this just sea of people, you know, a, a lot of young, a lot of young girls and just crowds of people. And, you know, Anson turns to, to us and he goes oh, well must be a concert going on here or something like that you know <laughs> and and then henry like looks at us or looks at us and he goes that's us it's it's there here for us and we were like what you know and, and we couldn't believe it and then we get up there and um you know we walk out on stage because we were backstage it was all quiet then we walk on stage and it was just this roar of you know, noise coming up as the three of us came out there. And then Henry just, he was in the center at the time and he kind of looked at me and looked at Anson. And then he looked out at the crowd and just went, Hey, like that. And the place place went bananas, you know? Um, so that's when, that was when we got the first time, got a sense of, of just how, 
like you said, how big it was, how many people it was reaching and the impact it had. And then there were some other incidents similar to that that happened uh, during during that trip. But uh, but that first one was certainly uh, indelible. And you're just essentially you're a kid. You're in your mid twenties when this happened. Yeah, so yeah, I was like twenty one. Does it jack your brain up? Twenty one. Well, that I was right? twenty when the show started. So by the time that first tour, I was probably just almost twenty one, something like that. Um, unless Man. it was the second season, I can't remember. But so I was twenty one or twenty two. Yeah, I mean it is a tricky thing to to happen. You know, I used to say it's like all of a sudden you're in the twilight zone. You know, I mean your world is just completely turned into this other other parallel universe and um and i would tell people you know they they didn't teach courses on you know you go to acting classes and this and that but they didn't teach you on what how to deal with if if something like this happened i I guess you really need a psychology course because it could totally mess mess with your brain and and um you know send you off in all kinds of, uh, it, it, it could, it's a trap. I mean, it is definitely the potential for it to be a big trap. Uh, luckily we had, uh, and, and we all went through, uh, adjustment periods and, you know, and, and all that, but luckily I, I had a really great, uh, family growing up. I, luckily I was 20 as opposed to 13 when that happened, you know, I mean, right. at the age of 20, you already, have sort of built up some kind of sense of identity and you've gone through, you know, I had gone through three years of college and all that. So it was more of a stable uh, uh, base, so to speak. And then with, with great role models that we had on that show, um, you know, Ron said, a per, he, he was so down to earth and centered and he, he could have been, he, he was already a star, but yet he set such a great example with his work ethic and, an attitude, and then Gary Marshall um, was a great uh, influence on us, and, and Jerry Paris, our director, maybe more than anybody was Jerry, because we worked with him every day, and and he'd been in the business a long time, and and he became like our my uncle, and and he he would keep us in line and make sure you know we so we were lucky that we had such a great group of people. Uh, that, um, and then we became like a family. When you look back on that time, do you have any sense of why that show became sort of this cultural phenomenon? That well, not sort of. I mean, look, it was the biggest thing in the world for a really long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, even even today, you know, there are catchphrases like you know, "jump the shark" that come right. from that show right. that people still use. So, so you know, w- without getting too dime store psychology on you, any idea what it was about that show that that endeared it to fifty, sixty million people every week for over ten years? Yeah. Okay. I think there. Were- there were two things, but the second one that I'm going to mention is, was the most important. Uh, this is besides you and your innate acting ability and your charisma and your magnetism <laughs> to the audience. What else? Yeah. What else? was? It? Well, like I said, uh, the second thing that I think is most important, but the first thing which had, a, had, was a factor. I think when you mentioned the period that we had just come out of um, and was still in, it was the early seventies and, you know, there'd been, such um you know unrest and and a lot of a, a lot of strife in in the world 
um, with the with the different with the civil rights and then Vietnam and all of that. That going back to a you know a simple a much simpler a nostalgic look at a period that was so opposite of that was a good escape. So uh, I think initially that might have helped get attention for the show and all that because you remember that was around the same time that American Graffiti had become a hit and Grease on Broadway. So the 50s, people right. kind of were looking at the 50s and the music. So that that was the factor. But I think what made, but, but that wouldn't have lasted. That would have made the show, you know, ran 11 seasons. I did the first seven, but, um, and it became like, you know, number one for years or in the top, uh, at least in the top three for then a couple more years. Um, so the re- the big reason for that is I think, um, yes, I mean, there was, there was some really good writing and all that has, that's a given. It has had to have been. But it was the unique sort of serendipitous grouping of, of the casting of this of this uh, of, of the cast, um, the combination and the chemistry of the, all these actors that was lightning in a bottle to some degree. You know, um, uh, the, the, I used to say uh, people that back then we weren't taken by the by the industry that seriously. I th- they I think they looked upon us as sort of you know, this fluffy material and a bunch of guys goofing off, having fun, but we took it very seriously and we worked really hard at it. We, we had a great time and we enjoyed working with each other immensely, but we all took it really seriously. And, and there was such talent there, you know, I mean, look what Henry, Henry finally, he won his, he won the Emmy, you know, last year for Bar- for the show, Barry and Ron, how great yeah, is Ron that? Howard, he's gone on to do a few things. So, <laughs> you know, minute. I mean, so you look at the depth of the talent and, and, you know, and Tom, Tom had won a Tony on Broadway before doing um, Happy Days, but then, you know, what he brought to the table and, and what a, and a wonderful, wonderful actress, Marion Ross is, and, 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 and Anson and I, the chemistry we had together um, and Aaron on the show was so great. And it was you know, so it's a combination of things, but I think the biggest thing was the, the chemistry and the, the talent that we had and, and our and our work ethic. I really think so. And so you cut out after uh, season seven, then came back and did some guest shots Once. towards the I, end. I, there, I did as one, I recall. one. Yeah, guest just shot? one. It was a, maybe a two parter, but it was uh, one one guest shot, really. Yeah, I left after the seventh season. So did Ron. Ron Howard and I. Uh, our contracts were up and, and we opted not to renew at that point. So when you're doing a period show like that, I, I'm wondering if, you know, if you take off the Superman cape, so to speak, and you don't dress like a kid from the 50s or early 60s, could you do at that time when this was the hottest show on the planet, could you do anything publicly, you know, without, uh, being interrupted at dinner a hundred times to sign an autograph or, or did you kind of have to stay at home for the better part of that seven years? Uh, interesting. Um, there was a period where it was so, it was so um, sort of omnipresent and, and overwhelming that I, I realized that I was staying home a lot. You know, it, it hit me that I was like becoming a hermit because I was avoiding going out. And, um, and I realized that was, it hit me one day when I realized that when I would go out, let's say for dinner, it was without it being a conscious thing. And then it hit me that this is what I was doing. 
I was always going to places where it was pretty dark and, and it had uh, areas where I could sort of be almost hidden and not seen. But I wasn't like consciously setting out to do it. It hit me after at some point where that's what I was seeking out, you know, uh, or I would just avoid going out. You know, and at the beginning, of course, it's kind of neat and fun and cool when, when, when it's happening. But when it becomes all the time and, uh, you know, 24-7, day after day, month after month, like we talked about earlier, it's, it, it, there's a real adjustment phase that you have to go through to learn how to deal with it. Um, sure. And, and, you know, these are, are obviously uh, what, what do they call, you know, first world problems. But, you know, I've, I've worked with lots of folks that have a degree of celebrity and, and just, you, you mentioned dinner, just getting through a dinner, especially if you're a nice guy and you'll stop and chat with people that come up. I can't tell you how many times I've been with, with my friends who are in the entertainment field and they let the dinner get cold and they never get to touch it because everybody comes up to say hi and they're gracious yeah. with them. And I'm sure you've been in that situation before too, where you, you want to be the nice guy and yet you're really jonesing for that cheeseburger and you're pretty hungry because it's been a long day. Yeah. I mean, there, there were definitely times where it's like, you know, you want to be nice, like you said, but then you also want to have a normal, have some normalcy and, and be able to go and, and have a dinner or a drink or whatever it might be. Go, because it was where, like you said, it was wherever you went, you know, the grocery, any, anywhere you went, because, because there were only three networks and there were 50, 60 million people, which was like, you know, it was over a quarter of the country would be seeing you every Tuesday. So it's kind of, you know, like I said, it's, that's the twilight zone time. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, we all kind of learned to how, how to deal with it and, and, um, and, and the, you know, it faded. So, you know, now uh, I might get recognized once in a while, but it's certainly nothing. It's a fraction of what it was then. And it's, it, it's, a, it's a lot easier and more manageable. Um, you know, uh, there's pros and cons with everything. And so with that great success, it's, it's very much the same. You know, there's going to be a lot of pros, but there are going to be, you know, you just, to have to find a balance somehow. Sure. Donnie Most, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. And look, you've gone on to do a lot of movies and a lot of TV. You've done some directing. You get the opportunity to go out and do theater, live theater, which I know has got to be a blast for you. Um, but I want to spend a little time talking about music. And you actually released an album in the middle of all this craziness on United Artists. I remember seeing it. Um, I do not still have a copy of it, but there was a Donnie most record that came oh, out right. during happy days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was, it was, it was just called Donnie most, um, all roads. And they might've called it because there was a single on there called all roads. Um, yeah, it was probably around 76, something like that. And what happened was, um, I, I'd met a guy who, who worked with a producer and, they knew that with the popularity of the show, they thought, and they knew that I sang because I talked in this interview about it, how I, you know, been a singer before I was really an actor, and um, they they thought that they can get me a with this producer a contract with United Artists, and but the music that I wanted to would have wanted to do, they, you know, at the time they said no, no, you know, this is uh, 
mid to late 70s. So to do the Great American Songbook, at that time, it was not like it is now. It was looked, it was not hip and cool no, then. It was looked upon as like your grandparents or your parents and grandparents' music. So so yeah. they would not let me sing that kind of music on the see on the album. So you, you know we had to pick out more sort of in the pop pop rock uh, vein and and so we did and I you know I I, I I like all kinds of music so it wasn't the stuff that was really in my blood but you know but I said, let's try it you know yeah hell and it was a great experience I I, I wouldn't have given it up for anything because I learned a tremendous amount about recording and all that um, but again it, it wasn't what you know, I was really about musically, um, and there's some good stuff on it. There's, you know, I'm surprised how many people uh, they liked as much as they do because, um, uh, you know, I I had some mixed feelings about it. But um, then, you know, I now I've got to do a CD of the music that I love. Um, I did it about two and a half years ago um, with a great arranger producer named Willie Murillo. And with he assembled an amazing big band, you know, some of the top L.A. jazz studio musicians and um, and did, you know, all the songs that I love with his with the arrangements that are fantastic and unbelievable musicians. And it's called D Most Mostly Swinging. And uh, so so, so that's out. And it's been out for, like I said, more than two years it's on iTunes and Amazon. And um and now, um, you know, I've been going out, as you know, performing in lots of clubs in New York, L.A. and other parts of the country and some theaters. Uh, and now I'm in the, I was in the middle of doing another CD with a, a terrific producer based in Na- Nashville guy named Tony Mantor. And um, it's a little different. We're still doing standards, but not, not the big band setting. It's a more contemporary jazz setting. And um, and mixed in with some seventies R and B and some, you know, some cool, uh, a little bit of a mixture of some other styles, but but yet there's the predominance of it is in the uh, jazz standards, and but with a very different um, approach, and I'm really liking it a lot. I'm I'm excited about it, and we were we had done eight songs out of the twelve. I was supposed to go back in April to finish, and then. Um, Things got put yeah, on everything hold. got put on hold as as we know. So I'm um, I'm just waiting to find out when when I can get back there and and, and get it done because I'm I'm really excited about the way it's going. Look, you, you know, you're one of the guys uh, out there that is fortunate enough to be able to do something for a living that's a lot of fun for you. Um, still, I'm assuming that that you know acting roles are enjoyable and directing and. TV and movies and singing, but if you had to choose one, if there was only one, uh, which would would it be? What what would get you the most excited to put your feet on the floor in the morning? It, you know, it's such an almost impossible question for me. People have asked that yeah. to me, and, and the tricky thing about it is, um, it's if you you have to find a way to compare it apples to apples, and what I mean by it is, let's say let's just talk about acting versus singing. Um, when I'm most of the times when I've been acting, it's been parts that I got cast in. I either auditioned for them, you know, and, and it wasn't the material. I didn't get to pick the material, um, or have that much control over it. 
and and you know you're just getting punched that you can get to, to right and now lately it's been getting a little it's been opening up for me because i've gotten past a lot of the the age of that i was on the show so the typecast problems has been easing up and and i've been getting offers for some interesting roles in movies and and tv but but for the most part when i you know you just get the part and and you do it when i was singing i'm picking this material i'm having control over you know and the arrangements and, and working with the with the music director and all that and and then in, in control of of how it's going to come out in terms of you know there's no editing there's none of you're you're up there doing it live so so it's 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 sort of an unfair comparison i would have to compare it now if i compare it to like uh, a part that I got that I love the material. I love the script. I love my part. I lo- and the people that I worked with were great, the director and the editor. So that, you know, so that the, pro- it, the end result is, is captured faithfully. Um, then, right. then, cause I would have said, I would have, I'd pick singing over acting, but if you, but w- when you enter that into the equation where it could be like on some of the recent projects I did, did a movie called MBF, which is on Amazon Prime now. Um, I I had an amazing time on that, and that was just as thrilling and exciting to me as when I'm, you know, in a little different way, but as singing is. So um, I don't know which one I would pick. <laughs> I really don't. But they're very, very, very close when when they're when they're equated in, in that level. You know what I mean? So you're still having lots of fun doing all this stuff, and that's that's a great thing. And and uh, occasionally we'll hear your voice. I remember you did a, a voiceover on Family Guy, right. um, and uh, and and you'll pop up on a TV show out of nowhere. You you got a chance to be on Glee for a, yeah, I had a re- of, yeah, uh, I had shows. a recurring role on Glee. I did uh, three episodes. Played um, the father to the character Emma, who was played by James Mays. Um, and I, yeah, I did a two-parter of Star Trek Voyager, and I did uh, uh, what's uh, oh gosh, so many other shows. Uh, a two-parter of the show The Crow, and um, uh, well, you know, you mentioned the typecasting thing. That I guess was an issue. I have a, a close friend whose uh, whose husband was Bob Denver, who played uh, sure. Gilligan, and and you know. For years in the seventies, they tried to make other versions of Gilligan's Island. There was a, you know, Gilligan's Island out west, and there was a Far Out Space Nuts, which was Gilligan in space, and and he was just kind of that right. guy. It, it must be a relief now for you to to be, you know, far away from Ralph Mouth. And yet, is there a part of you that still is grateful for that role? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, it was a double edged sword, and um, there were times when it was like, you know, the monkey on your back, and if you wanted to have a career that had longevity and, and have a, you know, a lifelong career, then that was a, it created a, 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 you know, a big, big challenge and it made it very difficult. So that's one of the reasons I, I decided after seventh season uh, not to renew because I felt like I needed yeah. to start trying to make a break. And, you know, I've been doing the same character for seven years and I wanted to play, a multitude of characters, a wide variety, and and um, so I, I made that break for that reason. And but yet, yes, but I wouldn't have given up that experience for anything. It was an amazing 
a wonderful experience and has afforded me so many things um, and opp opportunities. And, you know, like um, some of the theater I've been doing recently, uh, that wouldn't have, that's happened because, you know, they've all come to me and offered me some of these really great uh, roles in different theater productions. And that's because of, um, you know, the celebrity from Happy Days. So I, they wouldn't, I wouldn't have been getting those if not for that, you know. Um, there have been other parts that I've had to, you know, earn and, and not just get offers and I have to prove myself that I can do this kind of character or that kind of character. And it was especially tough back in the day when it almost didn't matter how good the audition was because if they felt like, oh, but you're still too associated with that character and they didn't want that baggage for a particular kind of project, you know, then, and I can't tell you how many parts I lost because of that, where, you know, I knew the auditions went great. The director loved me, but the, you know, the producer had the problem or the so-and-so had the problem because they didn't want the happy days association with such a dramatic project or, you know, I, 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 I have, you know, those horror stories, a lot of them. So, um, you know, that's when it got frustrating where it didn't even matter if you did a great audition that you still can't get it, you know? Um, and then it was like, oh, gosh, am I ever going to break away from this? Um, so I'm very thankful that it's been happening, you know, to a larger degree in, in recent years. And um, the movie I mentioned is on now. And I did another film with the same company called Lost Heart, which will be out uh, early fall. And um, and then I, you know, I did some really wonderful uh, theatrical productions recently and and I'm waiting for those to get rescheduled because uh, we were supposed to be doing more more of them, but it got pushed back. So, um, yeah, it's been a little tough that every just when things were really starting to roll, and then everything came to a to a sudden halt. But uh, hopefully soon. When things loosen up and Don Most comes to your town, though, you got to get out and, and see him sing and swing, yeah. or appear in a local theater yeah, production. Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, I think we would, would love to invite our audience, wherever you're listening, to come out and, and meet him. Don is one of the good guys out oh, there. Oh, thanks, Burke. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. And listen, I appreciate you being on the show today. And uh, if folks want to find you online, what's the best place for them to go? Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, on Facebook, under Don Most, I have uh, you know my personal page and a music page under that name. And then on Twitter, it's uh, at Most underscore Don and then on Instagram Don Most One and then I also have a website which is uh, I've woefully neglected and I need to bring up to date but it's DonnyMost.com Hey listen thanks for spending some time with me today and uh, keep the music coming would you? I absolutely will I appreciate uh, you having me on and look forward to seeing you sometime in the near future Absolutely. That's my friend Donnie Most, and uh, this is the Big Time Talker Podcast, brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. I'm Burke Allen. Thank you so much for listening. Go out and make it a great day.